I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get shows. And if you like what we're doing, please spread the word. If you'd like a pictorial and caption companion to the podcast, follow at Pada Bing on Instagram. And as always, thank you for listening and being a part of this amazing and surreal journey. This is a conversation I had with Alan Coulter. Alan produced 20 episodes of The Sopranos and directed 12. In no small part, he was integral to the vision, presentation, and execution of the show. Alan spoke to me from his home in upstate New York. It's a long chat. You might even decide to visit it in two parts. I thought a little about releasing it as a two-parter, but we developed a flow and pace that I thought was worthy of just being long form. I really loved getting to nerd out on the particulars of the show with Alan. He validated several points of view we explore on the podcast and shed new light on things I had never considered before. Because it was a phone call, we experienced some audio issues, but we made the best of it, and there's a lot in there to unpack regardless. That's it. Here it is. My conversation with Alan Coulter. Alan, thank you for doing the podcast. My pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to help in any way I can. And, and again, thanks for indulging these questions. We really examine every frame of the show as closely as possible and strongly believe everything was intentional. So I appreciate you going down memory lane one more time. Well, I'll be, I'll be happy to. And uh, I'm a big fan of the show as well, so I, I appreciate any other fan. Or kindred spirits. So first off, as it pertained to The Sopranos, define direction. Well, I mean, it probably morphed over time as directors, you know, came back to the show more and more, particularly like Tim Ben Patton, uh, myself earlier on, and then Tim increasingly, and then initially John Patterson and, and a few others, Alan Taylor. But, I mean, basically, like any other directing assignment, you know, you would get the script and you, you would be involved in casting and locations and so on. I, I would say not uh, atypical for television, you know, the creator, the writer, the creator, showrunner, has the final say in things, which is, you know, part of the nature of directing and television. And David certainly, David Chase certainly had a very strong vision. So, you know, everything had to be approved ultimately by, by David. But uh, it was also true that, you know, one weighed in on casting and not on scripts, I would say. Uh, I, that's the one thing that uh, I would say is different from virtually anything I've worked on is that there really was not a lot of uh, input on the scripts. They were labored over, every word thought through. So therefore, you know, you really didn't come into the show and say, gee, this sequence, is, this feels a little long or, you know, something that I, I do, you know, quite often. Uh, I mean, everything I work on, I, I weigh in heavily on the scripts, even in television. Mm. But uh, but not on The Sopranos. However, that was all made possible by the fact that the scripts were so good. It was, from the very beginning, obvious that this was writing of a different order that I had ever worked on, than I had ever worked on. You know, far superior in terms of the, the depth of the characters and the detail and the complexity and the use of language, which David was masterful at, you know, and, and demanding about. So it's also why actors couldn't change lines on the set without a phone call to David and a right. discussion. And so in, in many ways, it was like 
directing television. You know, you, you, you could weigh in on everything, uh, with this one exception, whereas, uh, where scripts were really not tampered with by anybody, uh, except the writers and, and primarily David, of course. I think, I mean, the thing, the only time that I ever really, uh, felt any edge of being a little frustrated was that because the show was so successful, David, it was very hard for David to let go of it. And so, particularly early on, he used to come on the set, not all the time, but from time to time, and, you know, would weigh in heavily, and, and that's always hard for a director, and particularly hard for me. And You know, I wasn't used to it, and uh, but even that eventually kind of went away, you know, or it diminished, you know. And it's understandable, because this was, the show was massively successful, so David, you know, wanted to do everything he could possibly do to protect it, and you know, he came to it as a person who'd really wanted to direct movies, and which he said. Yeah. It was very, very hard for him to give up that control. But he did. And, and uh, I mean, he he knew that that was his, you know, quality of his. And he fought against it in himself. But at the same time, you know, he had this desire to make the show what he envisioned. So I don't know if that answers the question. No, it does very nicely. And I, that was a kind of a, it's kind of a dense question for a first question. And I, a lot of listeners, we have a lot of young listeners, a lot of people that are aspiring to be in the business. So some of the questions are tailored around that as well, because you're a very successful director and producer and you've had a very illustrious career. So just hearing it from your perspective gives all kinds of color and context. So uh, I appreciate you going there. How did you first come into directing kind of just an overview? And then how did you become involved with the show? Well, I was producing commercials for a long time, and it, even as I was trying to break into the business as a director. And when I finally gave that up and, and uh, you know, really committed myself full-time to, to directing, you know, I, I, like many directors, I had to start, you know, at the proverbial bottom, which meant one of the first things I did for, as a paid director was uh, Tales from the Dark Side, which was like this late-night, cheap, slightly cheesy, you know, sci-fi thing, kind of a, Twilight Zone-esque kind of uh, show, but the great thing about that was that they would, it was non-union, they would hire directors who really had no resume, and they would really leave you alone. So I got started on that, and I I did a couple of things, that uh, a few things that were sort of after-school special types of things, and then finally broke into television, starting with doing like the title sequences for New York Undercover, uh, with some guys I'd worked with on Tales from the Dark Side, and they brought me over. But I was still wasn't in the union, so without belaboring this, I eventually got into the union by hook and by crook, and uh, and began to uh, do New York Undercover. But all this had taken—I mean, from the producing and so on—everything had taken me a long time to kind of get moving. And when I finally did, things moved rather quickly. So over the next two or three years, I did not only New York Undercover, but a show called Prince Street and a Spielberg cop show called High, High Incident and. You know, just a few things, and then I, I landed on a show called Millennium, which was a kind of a spinoff from X-Files, and then I did the X-Files. So all of that took place over a period of about three years, from the time I got into the union and started really doing primetime shows. And at one point, after I'd done X-Files, then that, kind of, that was the kind of the highest end for directors that existed in television at that time. That and, I suppose, NYPD Blue, there were a few shows that were really highly regarded. And so what happened was that in that process, I kind of, I got to know people in New York because I was working in New York a lot with New York Undercover. So in the meantime, I had gotten an agent, a guy named Paul Allen Smith, 
uh, who I'm still with. So two things happened. Paul Allen and I had met, and he was sort of tracking my career, and I hadn't signed with him. And he, you know, finally I signed with him, and he had a relationship with a woman at uh, Miranda Heller at HBO, and he and she was made aware of my you know, trajectory, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, other uh, people in New York I'd worked with, uh, you know, were aware of me. I, I don't know quite what was going on in the back rooms, but I know that. When I saw the pilot for The Sopranos, I, I'd already committed to doing a couple of shows in the new season. After doing X Files, I kind of had my, I had sort of my pick of shows, and I had picked a couple that I was going to do, and it all, virtually agreed to do them. And then I saw the pilot for The Sopranos, and I quickly called Paul and said, "You know, you've got to get me a meeting with this guy." This guy being David Chase. This guy being David Chase, because of this work in New York and you know, people from the New York side. When David came to town and was looking for directors, I guess they were recommending me. I mean, that's what I was told. And in the meantime, Miranda Heller at HBO, I suppose, had an eye out for me and must have recommended me from that end. Because I, I went into this meeting with David, you know, kind of recommended, it was sort of like a pincer movement, right? You know, I was recommended from both sides, you know, the New York side where he was looking for New York directors and the HBO side who were always looking to approve directors and uh, and so we had a meeting, and we hit it off. I remember I went in, and people were saying, oh, David's in a terrible mood, and everybody was kind of tiptoeing around. And I didn't really know him at all or, or really know anything about him. So I went in as an innocent, and within five minutes, we were laughing about something, and uh, next thing I know, he hired me. <laughs> you know, it, it was just one of those things where we just hit it off. Yeah, I yeah. think I got in the door that, that way. And I think I, apparently I reminded him of somebody that he and his wife were friends with, too. So as a result of this pincer movement, that uh, kind of brought me to David's attention. You know, we had this great meeting, and as I say, you know, we hit it off. Uh, he was in apparently a bad temper, but by the time we talked for five minutes, we were already laughing about something. And uh, he had, I apparently reminded him of somebody he and his wife were friends with. So all the things kind of coalesced into him hiring me. And uh, the episode that was available was this college episode. Before we get into the specific episodes, art and lighting and optics are significant parts of the presentation of the show. Even the most ordinary, everyday things are presented in a visually stunning way. What were the discussions about those aspects of the show that you were privy to as a member of the producing and directing teams? Well, I mean, the look of the show was uh, cinematically was established by David Chase and Alex Sakharov. Uh, Alex Sakharov, who was the cinematographer mm-hmm. for the first season, the set design was Bob Shaw. Uh, so, I mean, to a large degree, uh, the look was really influenced by the lighting that Alex established and by David's very precise you know, kind of hands-on you know, uh, selection of locations because he knew that world. You know, he knew the world he was trying to uh, establish. And, you know, that, that really influenced a great deal of, uh, of how the show looked. In fact... I remember uh, having a funny conversation because in the beginning, you know, you would walk into a location in New Jersey and you go, God, this is so ugly. You know, a house or a whatever, an interior of a house, you know, this is so tacky or whatever. Mm-hmm. And really, as time went on, you would walk into the same house and you'd say, God, this is beautiful. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, remember the season two, uh, the Skitino Sporting Goods store, the most ordinary regular of places on earth and they lit it like a Italian painting. It's just incredible. You produced 20 episodes and directed 
12. For those unfamiliar, what's the difference between producing and directing, at least as far as you are concerned? Well, I mean, uh, directing, you're really uh, intimately involved, you know, on a day-to-day basis in all the decisions. I mean, you know, casting to, you know, you would make, you would have opinions certainly about locations and Sometimes David would go with it, and sometimes he would overrule because he preferred another one. Uh, occasionally, that would happen in casting. I mean, but it was always you're, you're, and then you're on the set, staging the scenes, working with the cinematographer of how, where you want to put the camera and how you want to shoot the scene, talking to the actors, you know, in terms of uh, what you're looking for, in terms of again, as I say, staging, in terms of uh, you know whatever quality you're trying to draw out. You're rehearsing with the actors uh, first without the camera and then bringing the camera person in to begin to stage the scene. And then you're sitting in the editing room overseeing the director's cut, which then is turned over to the creator, in this case, David, David Chase. And, mm. and then he would do a, a final pass on the edit. So, but as a producer, you're, not, you're, st- you're back a step or two. You're not directing the actors on the set. You're not... Uh, uh, you're not even necessarily going on the uh, the location scout. Sometimes you would be, and sometimes not. You know, depending. You might sit in a meeting to discuss locations. You might sit in a casting session. But mostly, what you're trying to do is is be uh, an aide and an overseer of the incoming directors. At least that's the role that in, uh, what I call the producing director role. Mm. That is to say, a director is also producing. There are other kinds of producers, and this is where it can get into the the complications of that term. <laughs> there's line producers who are overseeing the money and who are overseeing the general production, from, uh, including every department, and you know, calling people on the carpet if they're over budget, and and uh, making you know d- executive decisions about you know uh, how the thing should be scheduled. Working with the assistant director. So there's many different kinds of producers. The kind of producer that I was and that Tim Ben Patton became is a producer who's directing however many episodes they choose to direct and then trying to guide and help and influence and the incoming directors in order to maintain a kind of consistent look and style uh, to the show and sometimes it's uh, you know it's that and sometimes it's just you know being a, a an ear for a director who's got a question and because you're familiar with the show because you're an ongoing presence and they're they're like uh, being jobbed in, you know, so sure, sure. So it's you're you're not nearly as hands on in terms of production as a producer, as a producing director. You're not talking to the actors. You might be whispering in the ear of the director if you can establish a good relationship there, and you're not. Nobody likes to. No director likes to direct another director. But you know, you might be you know making a suggestion if the you're looking at the clock and you're saying, look, you know, you're going to have to finish by midnight. And you've got this whole scene to do. Is there a way that you can simplify your plan? You know, would you consider this? And not that the director necessarily would do what you say, but but at least you're there to present a a solution to a, a practical problem. So there's there's the pragmatic side, and then there's the and then there's what you hope will be a little bit of a creative input in terms of trying to help them get in the groove of the show. And then and then there's just being kind of a a guide, or let's say a watchdog for David Chase. Uh, you know, I mean, I remember being on the set, and uh, I don't, I don't even know if I was directing. I, I might have just been producing. Can't remember, but I, I remember this would be a sort of producer's role because Jim Gandolfini wanted to change a line, 
So, uh, you know, I had to call David and say, look, Jim wants to change this line. Here's his reason. That would be, I mean, the director could do that, but as a producer, you might be the one making that call because you have the relationship with David. Sure. You know, yeah. And the director needs to stay on the set to continue to work with the cameraman and stuff. And as a producer, you could step aside and say, okay, well, look, let me, let me handle that and go off and, and, and deal with the issue. Uh, I want to go back just for a minute to uh, what you were asking about uh, directing and the style. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I would say is, though, as far as the, the way you shot the scenes, uh, the way you staged things and so on, the way you used the camera, that really was not, there was not a, a strong template that you had to follow. I mean, it was, generally speaking, the style was kind of classic. You know, there was nothing about it that was avant-garde. It was just standard, it was classic filmmaking, you know, mm-hmm. sort of movie-like. But it wasn't, it was certainly not the television, uh, the, the network television idea that is slowly breaking down, but uh, of, you know, I must have coverage and I must have a close-up of him saying this line and I must have a close-up of saying, I need to see every line on camera. I mean, and by and large, we did because the language was so important in the show, but I never felt, David never told me how to shoot something. And when I began on college, you know, I really, that, that episode is not really shot quite like the rest of the show had been shot up until that time. No. A different style. And on the set the day that we were shooting up in the, we shooting in Jersey uh, at one of the so-called campuses, you know, uh, when uh, Tony takes Meadow to one of the campuses and David came on the set one morning and said, I've just seen all the dailies and that you really get it. And I want you to stay on as a producer. And uh, I've got one more episode that's available. I want you to do, that was the one called Isabella. And, yep. uh, you know, and that was, that was it. And um, he's alluded to that show as being, that episode, I should say, that is one that kind of told him what the show was. Largely, that, let's face it, that happened to be that script. But I think that, uh, and I don't say this to blow my own horn, but it's, I think there's some truth to the fact that it was shot differently than other things. Oh, for sure. That episode broke the broke the dam open, if you will, in terms of the possibility of like, this is we're not watching TV. We're watching something very, very different. Um, well, that was my intention. I mean, I appreciate that, and I, I jump in to say, you know, I was just I'm just started watching the series again just because I'm interested. I haven't seen it in 20 years, and uh, you know, and I can see that the first uh, episodes, you know, the coverage is is pretty, I would say, standard television coverage. You know, it's it's nice, but it's there's nothing about it that's particularly cinematic. I would say, and I came at it from a different perspective, and you know, just decided, well, I'm going to shoot this the way I would shoot anything. And fortunately, that was what David wanted. You know, I mean, he he, he really responded to that. And uh, I think that that did kind of open the door for, for others to, to explore even further, you know. Uh, With respect to college, what were the conversations about portraying this episode as standalone? Did you were you guys thinking about that? How it's now looked as one of the premier standalone episodes of all time in, in the television medium. Was that a conversation that you guys had, or did that happen organically? Yeah, no, there was no conversation about that. I mean, no, I mean, just I got hired like a director, and I just went in and shot it the way I thought it should be shot, and you know, David loved it. So I mean, that was it. Really, was uh, it just happened? I mean, it was it was a fortuitous thing because. I had come into the television world rather late and, and really wanting to do movies but not having the clout or the whatever it would have taken to do one. Sure. And uh, 
So I just, and David, I know, you know, subsequently, or actually we talked about it, but, you know, he'd wanted to do movies and, and uh, anybody who came up, you know, sort of at our time wanted to do film because television just wasn't the, the medium for directors. But I had been fortunate that all the things I'd worked on, I was able to pretty much shoot them the way I wanted to. I was going to say, when when you orbited Tony's head in the in the opening sequence of college, that became sort of a, a trope, I guess. If that's, I don't know if that's the right word or not, but it happened several other times throughout the show, and it's kind of like the, the fans and and people that contemplate and all the academic writing that's come out on the show is sort of, it's always showing the two sides of Tony, and college sort of opened that as well. You know, there's when uh, when when Livia passes away and Tony pulls up into on her onto her street as the ambulance is pulling out behind him you see a shadow of light that's basically showing a dark side of his face and a light side of his face and everything else in the scene is completely dark and it's almost showing like this this idea of like a little tinge of light amidst all this bleakness and darkness that was Livia but it really started with college it really started with showing two sides of Tony's head what was your thought process in doing that in 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 bringing him in but sort of like 360 orbiting him like he's a, like he's the he's the earth and we're the moon well that's the that's the shot when he's on the campus and he lights up a cigar and exactly he yeah well i i wanted to show i mean obviously when you do these things you're not thinking quite so metaphorically or okay. <laughs> in the global sense no i mean i i don't object at all i think that's great uh, in fact those things are kind of more buried in your subconscious you know but what I wanted to show, and there's actually another shot that's kind of related to that, and that has to do with when Father Phil shows up at the house uh, with Carmela in the rainstorm and comes in, and she takes his jacket off. Yes. And But with Tony, I mean, uh, with Jim, I, I really wanted to to place him in that world. I, w- I was very interested in trying to get inside his head with the camera, uh, which was a little bit more subjective than and people have been shooting the show up until that time. I love that line. So I, I, love would, what, I love what you just said. That's well, that great. was the idea, was yeah. to try to put you, in, put you in his world and to sort of see the world in a sense through his eyes and also, you know, but with a slight distance, like a very intimate voyeur. So I, I, um, so I felt like, well, this world is alien to him too and is kind of magical to him. So I thought I wanted to show, keep him at the center of that world but reveal the world with the camera uh, as we encircled him. And you hear the distant sounds. I think there's chimes or Mm -hmm. something. You know, uh, just to say, this is a magical moment for him. And I thought that something about the the camera moving that way, it's a shot I probably would be hesitant to do now because it can feel real mannered. But I felt I could get away with it. It wasn't quite done so much at that time. And I felt like I could get away with it because he was so magnetic and because of what you were seeing and because you were revealing the world that he is found himself uh, in the midst of. It's a good point. The subject of the frame is actually what makes the shot, right? And he was the subject. So um, yeah, it might right. not have worked on another character, especially as far as we'd gone with him so far, only four episodes. It's a great point. Can you talk about the concern about Tony killing Fabian, about him becoming unlikable to audiences so early in the show? What was the air like about that issue? Well, that was a big deal for HBO because they were very, very concerned that they would lose their audience uh, when they watched a principal character, you know, murder somebody. And that was a big, I was not embroiled in that battle, but David very much was. And 
I know that he was pressured, greatly pressured, to do something to justify that murder. And at that point, David did not have the power yet because the show hadn't hadn't aired. Mm -hmm. So consequently, he didn't have the clout. A year later, they could not have forced him to do that. He would have just said no, because I don't think he really agreed with that. But we don't know for a fact because... The solution was, ultimately, that they added the subplot, and that was added as a result of these discussions uh, and this kind of, I would say, uh, disagreement with HBO. But ultimately, David had to address that, and that's when he introduced the subplot where where, uh, there's an awareness of that character that he's being followed. He's, you know, and he hires this kind of incompetent couple, right, to to try to kill Tony. So consequently now, it's all justified. Yeah, we're on Tony's side because someone's out to get him now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, had that subplot not existed, we'll never know what the response would have been. Yeah, it's true. But uh, So that was added. So that was, the, that was a direct result of that very concern that you articulated is, are they going to still like him? But I think the other thing is that no one could have counted on the magnetism of Jim Gandolfini. Yeah, well said. Let's move to Isabella. The show is so... There's so many, there's so much pattern and symmetry to it that little things like this get me constantly just in a state of wonderment. You directed the penultimate episode for season one and for season two. Was that intentional? Was that by design? Um, What's the penultimate episode of season two? I can't even remember now. The penultimate episode of season two is Night in White Satin Armor. And in both of those, epi- the reason I'm asking is because in both of those episodes, in Isabella and in Knight in White Satin Armor, a hit on Tony is attempted or at least put in motion. And so I'm trying to get, is, there, is, it, is it completely coincidental or was this by design that you were the one that directed both penultimate episodes in which Tony, his life was in danger? You know, that would be a question for David because okay. I, I, I don't really know. I just know. I mean, with Isabella, there was another episode. I, I can't remember which one it was. I really wanted to. Well, no, Isabella was the only one available. That's right. So that's the one I did. And then okay. the next season, there was actually another episode I wanted to do. But David, you know, he had reasons where he wanted me to direct certain episodes. Sure. So I, as, as far as thematically is concerned, you're much more. Uh, I'll have to, as I'm watching the, se- the series again, I'll look at that. And You'll then see maybe it. I'll have a, You'll, it's the first thing. It's the we were supposed to talk. I think we were supposed to talk a week ago. And when I was preparing the questions for this, that was the that, that was the thing that just jumped out to me the most. I'm like, wait a minute, and, I, and it occurred to me naturally. I'm, Alan Coulter directed the penultimate episode of season one and season two. That has to mean something. <laughs> I couldn't get over it, but not. Well, every- I know that. Uh, I'm sorry. I, well, I, it, it's interesting that you say that because also John Patterson did the first episode of both those seasons. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and I think he may have done the finale too. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure if I, you know, I would recall it, but I haven't got that far yet. We're still working through season three right now on the podcast. All right, well, check it out. But I but anyway, to go, to go back to Isabella, I mean, uh, David really wanted me to do that one because he felt that. I mean, what he said to me at the time was, "This, I think there was one other possible episode because I had a discussion with him. He said, no, you have to do this one because this one requires a filmmaker.' You know, whatever he meant by that." You know, I was happy to do it, and uh, and again, that episode is extremely subjective in the use of the camera. I mean, it's, it's sure. Uh, you know, uh, the opening shot, as I recall, was in fact a whole sequence with Carmela when uh, when Tony wakes up. I remember I, I had this image of a beached whale, you know, 
and I think it, it starts with just his eye, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Just kind of, just see his eye kind of rolling around in his head as he listens to Carmela in the background as she moves around the room. You know, it was, for television, a pretty bold shot. It wouldn't be for movies, but for television it was, because the camera just sits on him. Yeah. You know, and, What's bold about it is also, I didn't mean to cut you off, but how much no, time ahead. how much time Tony spends in bed is so confident because it's just a guy laying in bed and, and, and you there's minutes of time spent of, of, of showing him in that state. And that's bold and confident because people want action and motion and stuff and, and theatricality. And nope, you just get Tony in bed. And I love the confidence to make those choices. Yeah, well, that, I mean, of course, it's in the script, you know, yeah. and it's, it's David too. And, and I just tried to... Uh, what I tried to do was make uh, Carmela just in the way we shot and the lens that we used, which is a good example of that I was not told how to shoot that. I mean, that David was very open at this point after the first episode, you know, after college. But you know, to use to to shoot it in such a way that Carmela's like a uh, like an, a gnat kind of buzzing around his head, you know, annoying him. <laughs> She's very small in the background, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, and you know, and just being able to use these various techniques to kind of place Tony at the center of the story and, and to kind of get us inside his head. And as, if you recall the moment where he goes in and takes some pills in the bathroom and then goes and sits in the shower stall. Right. If you remember that? Off I mean, kilter. the idea I had there, yeah, well, it, it's, it starts upright and then it kind of goes off kilter. The idea I had with that was kind of like a launching pad. You know, I had them get me a Dutch head on the camera so that we could have the camera resolve, revolve so that it looks like the shower is kind of being leaned over like a rocket that's going to be launched. That was mm. sort of the idea. Like, you know, it, it's almost, it's kind of mechanical. It's not a, it's a very mechanized move. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, if you look at that, you can almost hear the sound of some kind of pneumatic launching system, you know, <laughs> being fired, you know. But that was, the, the, the fact was that I was trying to get inside his head because remember, he's also, I mean, we're sort of getting stoned with him. And the other thing I used in that was, again, just talking, going back to your question about, you know, the styles of things. This is where the director does, at least in that show, has some control. I tried to use the uh, wind throughout. That wasn't necessarily written in, you know. I don't the shot of the trees, part. the shot of the trees blowing in the wind, was that you or was that in the yeah. script? No, uh, that was me. I love uh, it. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the sheets blowing in the wind mm-hmm. and the... Uh, I think that's the scene where there's one where a hat blows and brings us to Junior and Livia, I believe. Uh, yeah, when they're standing, sort of, they're standing in a queue for either a, like a matinee yeah. or something. Exactly. I mean, it was a little bit of a tip of the hat to the Coen brothers, but it was also just play off that wind. And I tried to include wind in every shot of Isabella. Why? Because I felt like it said something about, because I liked the sound, and I said something about the ethereal nature of that character as opposed to just putting in a room that was still. I thought it kind of added a little quality of, uh, this is not quite the correct use of this word, but diaphanous about it. You know, I mean, that there was always something mysterious and ethereal and not solid about her, obviously. So that was that was sort of in my thinking. I mean, one of the things that I can tell you is that the way I work is that, and I did this with David, is I always sort of begin everything I do with a discussion about what's the story beneath the story. And what is, what is and I don't remember exactly what, what we said in that instance, but I know I always started the discussion with saying to David, well, yeah, but what's this really about? Oh, yeah, I get it. Okay, so, but what's this, what's this about 
underneath that. You know, if it was an English class, you'd say, what's the unifying, you know, theme, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so in that case, I just was trying to talk about the insubstantial world of Tony. Is that the episode that, yeah, that's the one that ends with him standing out under the In trees. his backyard with the six yeah. deck chairs. Yeah. And he's, and it's like a real wide shot and he's real wide. Right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, again, that wasn't typical television, right? I mean, you don't, no. you know, I can imagine the network's responsible. We need a close up. You know, why do we have this shot? Let's just take that out. You know? But of course, David didn't say that. And that was sort of two things that was meant to show, to make, to show Tony is powerless in that situation, you know, to, you know, keep the trees and the, that world a part of the shot. And in a curious way, a way, a kind of, uh, Influenced by the, uh, uh, I think I can't remember if it's the final shot of uh, Juliet of the Spirits, but but uh, there's a very wide shot of Juliet and Messina at the end of that film. Anyway, it was sort of an homage to that, but it was also just trying to show Tony is here. He is threatening somebody, but he looks pretty small and inconsequential mm. and powerless. I I saw it as a I saw always saw it as a breath of fresh air. He survived, you know, and it's sort of like a big gasp. You're just kind of inhaling the scene and you're just sort of like, okay, there he is. He's a small fish in a big pond, but, you know, he's like a cat. He's got nine lives and he just walked away from, um, it's so interesting how these perspectives can, can just when you think about it, it, it's so open-ended. And one of the beautiful things about the show is the ambiguity. It can, it can mean so many different things to so many different people contextually, but I really like what you said. I just want to hear your intention behind it. It makes so much sense, actually. Yeah, well, I, I'd love to hear other people's opinions because often they're more interesting than mine. That's just what <laughs> I'm thinking. Well, I want, to move, I want to move through this and I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much sure. for doing this. I got a bunch of more episodes to ask you about. Guy walks into a psychiatrist's office, um, the Frank Sinatra opening montage. What were the discussions and visions for executing that? And how do you feel about montages in general? I mean, we had the music and... I, again, David didn't say anything about. He just, I just knew the, the things that I had to see. You know, I think it's uh, Silvio's, like in the sh- getting some shoes or something, and or looking at something in a in a mirror, and and uh, Polly's screwing some one of the Bada Bing girls on the pool table. I mean, that's that's basically what it said. He didn't say how to do it, and then, and here's the song. And Carmela taking the ziti out of the oven twice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Any reason, uh, any any thought process on why you showed that twice? Well, I, it was written that way. Okay. I, mean, okay. Uh, I think I think it was. I mean, if I had to say, I would say it's because life goes on, and this is what she yeah. does. Yeah. This yeah. is this is the pattern of her life. You know, it doesn't really change. Uh, I don't remember all the images. I just knew that uh, here was the song, and here's what we're seeing. So I wanted to create as, as seamless a piece as possible. I think it leads all the way up to Tony walking down the driveway doesn't it and yeah. seeing yeah. pussy get out of the car it kind of fades at that point you yep. know because that's a pattern too him going down to pick up the paper you know of course the, the kind of uh, ritual patterns of any ordinary life the regularness of life to quote the show yeah there you go Every and, Sunday uh, morning, we get, we get the Sunday Times at home, and every Sunday morning when I go down to get the paper, I, I envision myself as Tony. I don't have the robe, but I'm always thinking of that scene, and that's how indelible the, 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 the sort of consistency and continuity of that scene has been. Well, that's, that was, and I think it's a nice misdirect because you're kind of in this mood, and then there's big pussy down there, you know? Yeah, I love uh, it. And, and then I just, I, what I tried to do was just create a sequence that was seamless and, you know, musically 
bound, cinematically bound to the musicality of the song. I mean, it's a great song, and I just tried to let it have this kind of, and I tried to introduce a little bit of humor. I mean, re- the revealing of Polly and those, and ending on her shoes because I, I loved the shoes that the woman had on, and um, you know, just trying to to find ways to figuring out how to shoot Silvio in that mirror there, you know, because it was one of those slanted mirrors, you know, where I can't remember if he's looking at shoes or at um, a suit. suit, but yeah, uh, yeah, suit. yeah uh, just trying to find ways to reveal these people in their world, uh, even as the camera is on its own kind of journey. Yeah. You know, journey that's going to lead us right to Big Pussy, you know, basically. And so I wanted to feel like you're on a, very steady, steadily moving train that's going to dump you out at the end of the driveway. Well said. The final sequence of that episode, Tony comes home to Carmela, crestfallen after Melfi rejects his diner apology. The final sequence played out like a ballet. Carmela's making Tony pasta. I think she's microwaving it for him and then uh, filing through mail. Um, and there's there's no sp- there's very little said. Um, it's a very long shot. I think it's almost, I want to say almost three minutes of, of uh, screen time. Can you talk about the vision, the intention, and the execution of that final sequence, which where nothing was really said or done? There was so much conveyed. Or through in, in the in, in terms of backstory, in terms of where they are in their relationship, and in terms of moving the story forward. Huh. Well, now I'm at a disadvantage because I haven't seen that shot in probably you know 19 years or something. You know, so okay. I, 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 it's hard for me to remember if it's a single shot. I don't remember if I. It is. It is as close. I don't. I won't. I. I don't want to be mistaken and get corrected by fans, but it feels like a single shot. It feels like a one shot, but I think there's one or two cuts, but uh, it's just to get the view of Tony sitting at the table or something. But most of it is just the two of them dancing uh, in the kitchen, moving from side to side, swaying. And if you don't remember, I'm totally okay with it. I just wanted to know if you had any feelings that bubble up to the surface when I mentioned that scene, because it's a very powerful scene. It's interesting. I mean, I, I do remember, I mean, I'll give you my uh, my uh, vague memory of it, which was that it was, there was something about its, uh, the way it was written to be this very still, quiet, uh, life goes on with a, you know, with a fog of something heavy kind of hovering over it. But basically, life goes on. I think it, it, as he starts to look, uh, he picks up the mail and starts to go through it, or she does. She does. He he, yeah. he he plays with his fork. He plays with the Z yeah. on his fork. Yeah. Yeah, and that's all he does, really, as I recall. And she moves about the room, I think. And I think I used her as a kind of fulcrum or something that we, you know, kind of to get around the scene. I kind of Good used, word. as I recall, you know, Carmela. And again, he's the axis or the axle around which she revolves. A little bit, uh, I guess you could say, uh, related to Tony being that very uh, center of the sequence that you talked about in college. In this case, he's still the center, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, and she's moving around. This time, the world that's moving around him is is Carmella. That's interesting. I like that. The world of the house itself. Yeah, especially in the house. It's her domain, more or less. So it makes sense that she would be the center of that universe. Um, Anyway, yeah, that's 
Yeah. So does that make sense? In terms yeah. Of no, it actually makes a lot of sense. And and for someone who doesn't remember it, you actually articulated it beautifully because the, you used the word fulcrum, and that was kind of what I've been trying to figure out. Like this is this scene is more about Carmela and what's going on, and it, like why why is it taking three minutes? But it's it's the regularness of life playing out and showing the Carmela as the center of the universe, especially when it at least when it pertains to the house. It makes total sense. Yeah, well, you're with her, but at the same time, she's tethered to him. Yeah, of course. So, of course, yeah. You know, yeah. so even as she moves, it's you know, she is still linked to uh, this dead weight at the table. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, well, you, you, he's not on. He, there's certain frames where it's just her, and her back is turned to him, but you feel his weight back there and that's yeah. exactly what the camera is conveying i totally yeah it makes total sense because you, you do a long shot like she's at one end of the counter and then you know that yep. the dining table is way back there and you're almost looking at her from his eyes so you feel that you feel that like seesaw uh disproportionality um yeah. fascinating night in white satin armor one of my favorite episodes of all time the opening sequence, Richie's son is dancing in an empty house. How did that idea manifest? Is it as simple as it being in the script, or was there a conversation about how to execute that? Yeah. No, it was in the script. And, okay. And uh, i trying to remember how I shot that. I mean, it seems to me it's shot with only a few few angles. Isn't that right? I mean, yeah. It's uh, one point of view from one end of the house, and then another point of view from the other end of the house. And then uh, I, I, I watched on a, on a director's cut, you talked about how you had uh, Tony come in, ask first to sort of break the beauty of the scene, which is which is just fantastic when you th- when I heard you say that. I, I stand with what I said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the shooting scene. What was the thought process and intention behind the relative swiftness of the act? As a viewer, you don't see it coming, obviously, if you're watching it for the first time. But it happened. There was no buildup. There. Janice turns around. She comes back with a gun. Boom. It's over. Thought process in commentary on the intention behind that? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, the way it was written was pretty much like that. That is to say that she just comes in and just, and, and shoots him and shoots Richie. And, uh, yeah, I mean, basically it was written that way. It was really, she just walked back and bam, she shoots him. I tried to add a little something to that. I had them make me a chair that was hinged. Uh, the back legs were hinged so that, uh, Richie could lean back, and I and I got him a copy of Bride's magazine, put it in the chair, so he had he kind of I just like the idea of him sitting on it and just kind of casting it aside. And the reason I did that thing with the chair is it, it sort of reminded me of high school when the when the tough guys would kind of like make leaning back in their chair and making wise cracks, you know, just kind of you know just being assholes basically. And uh, I like that he could lean back in the chair and then have that little moment of imbalance when she shoots him, right? Isn't yeah. Kind of look shocked, and then he just goes over. Yeah, that way we control the fall, you know, and also I could have that moment with him being, you know, he's just an asshole until the last moment. Yeah, yeah. But such a good one. Such a powerful actor. Yeah. I got to talk to David Proval on the podcast as well. He came into the studio, and um, just a fascinating antagonist as far as to yeah. Tony and he was one of the only guys that could ever go really go toe to toe with Tony and that's what made it so powerful and just to the oh, very great. yeah I agree with you I, I I do remember something I'll tell you that I was at that time I was doing Sex in the City because after the first season of Sopranos they'd asked me to come in and try to bring some style to the show that hadn't really found itself visually and they brought in new writers and that made you know Michael Patrick King and that 
you know, Jenny Bix and others, and that really made a huge difference, but they also wanted it to visually be more interesting. So they had asked me to do that, so as a consequence, I got to do, I got to meet, you know, got to know Sarah Jessica, and I still remember her commenting on R- Richie, on that character, saying that even his back scared her. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so great. To your point about to your point about David Proval, actually, we he came in and he told me about his audition when he came in to read. He was down onto the short list, and uh, there's a there's a commentary there. You know, if you if you're curious, I encourage you to listen. He was it gives some fascinating anecdotes about the process. But the long and the short of it was the guys in the room, the HBO people. They when he left, the, two people came up to him afterwards, and they were like, you know we feel much safer now that you're out of the room. Like he, 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 he was Richie from minute one and there was something about the backstory of how that all came to be. But what your anecdote so sort of like nicely ties that together. Like, yeah, his back, his back scared you. It is. Yeah. He's just, he, he couldn't be a nicer guy. I of mean, course. Just, of course. knows. Just, it's yeah. always the case. These guys that are totally scary turn out to be like the sweetest the sweethearts and he certainly was he was very easy to direct and he was lovely i mean i, I you know funny thing to say about a character who seems so venal but he couldn't have been nicer and, yeah uh, well you know the fact that everybody hates him is a testament to the writing and to the acting because he's you know it's uh from minute one when he gets out of the jeep with adriana and he walks right into beansy's pizza parlor you know he's a character that's formidable and is going to be you know that's you're gonna he commanded the screen time and and there's a great line from the show he's got tremendous moxie for his size and and that's such an apt way to describe him. Real quick on the to wrap up Night in White Satin Armor, Christopher comes in to clean up the mess, so to speak. And there's a moment when he actually looks into the camera. Was that accidental? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, uh, he comes in, he comes in and he surveys the room and he locks eyes with the lens. So as a viewer, we make we get to make eye contact. It's like a Mona Lisa situation. We get to make direct eye contact with Christopher Moltisanti. And I don't know TV, I don't know production, but I feel like that you're like that's not something that you're supposed to do, like look directly into the camera or Oh, that's or correct. Yeah. Am I off? No, you're correct. You know, it's if you do it, it's it's a, it's a statement, you know. I mean, it's it's a you know, it's funny. I don't remember that, but I, I wouldn't have missed it. So it must have been something that he did. I decided to go with because I certainly would have not overlooked it. But it's funny. I don't remember a discussion about it or anything. So okay. I'll have to look at that myself and see. But it certainly wouldn't have, you know, it would have been noticeable at yeah. the time. I was being literal at the beginning when I said that we go frame by frame. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, it's a, it's, it is, it is an unusual thing. I mean, I'll look at it and, and I'll, but I will have to jog my memory if it was one of those things where I went, oh, well, I like it, you know, but I don't remember having a discussion with him about, hey, do okay. this, you know, okay. it, it would have been a, it, it, but you're right. It is a, it's, it's an unusual thing. I mean, I've done it a few times over the years, but very, very selectively. I mean, you really have to, otherwise it doesn't mean anything if it just becomes a constant thing, but right. You've got to sell it. You've got to sell it. And I've done it a couple of times. But it's it's pretty rare, so I just don't happen to remember that one. Yeah, I remember. Uh, is that the one where Tony's uh, with the with the Russian girl and she walks on the bed? Uh, no. This is a, a satin armor. When right after Richie gets shot, uh, Christopher comes in through the back door, through right. the kitchen door to. Yep, uh, I remember that. Yeah. Survey uh, and clean up the mess, and he just sort of yep. like pans like one eighty degrees with his eyes, and he locks on the camera. It's a moment. It's less than a second. When I talked to Michael Imperioli, I asked him about it, and he said I, he had no knowledge or recollection of it either. He just came in and yeah. and and panned. I think what happens is. That- 
Yeah, I think what happens is sometimes that happens by accident. The actor doesn't intend to see the camera, but they they catch it with their eyes. Yeah. And in this case, it might have been just a, one of, a lucky accident because it actually sort of because of your reaction, it, it suggests that it didn't take you out of it. That's always the no. danger. What it told, what it said to me it. was, he's looking at me for a moment, saying, "Holy shit, what just happened?" And then he's going, <laughs> and then he's going back into the scene. It's kind of like the House of Cards thing where, you know, the, the character looks into the camera and talks to you. Yep. It wasn't quite yep. that, but I got that same sort of, I felt like I was outside of the four corners of the show for like a, a tenth of a second. <laughs> That's good. I, I like it. I'll take credit, even though I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's move to university. Do you have a, did you have a sense about the social gravity of that episode when you made it? Because when it came out, it became a quite a controversial episode. I believe that HBO subscribers like threatened to unsubscribe. And can you, can you go back to that time and place? Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I can. Uh, that one I do remember uh, pretty well because it, the deal was that, and, and I wasn't alone, that in reading the script, I remember I went to David and I said, man, you know, there's just nobody likable in it. This is really disturbing. I mean, the script read the way that the show aired. I mean, it played, I should say. And I was not alone in that. He said, yeah, I know. He said, but I've got to remind people that these aren't just charming wags, you know, that they're not just, you know, they're, yes, they're gangsters, but aren't they charming? And he said, I got to remind everybody that they're gangsters and that they do terrible things. And that was his intention with the episode from the get-go. And so it read, certainly, as a very disturbing and relentlessly dark episode. Mm. And uh, in directing it, I mean, a uh, story that I've told, which is actually true from my perspective anyway, is that, I mean, it was a very depressing episode to direct. And um, because I tend to shoot things subjectively and because, you know, and sort of, I guess, unconsciously, you know, I, I sort of embed myself with the, with the story and with the actors and so on. So I was feeling depressed throughout the whole shooting. I mean, really, the whole thing is just like kind of sickening as far as I was concerned because everybody was a son of a bitch, you know? I mean, Silvio and the treatment of this girl and so on, it was just, it was really grim, you know? And I think that's the one where the the poor guy that works in the body being just end up with like, he gets hit by, uh, doesn't Ralphie hit him with a chain or something? Yeah. The gladiator. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the homage and stuff. The whole thing was was just honestly disturbing to direct, and uh, and the killing, you know, of the girl and so on. It was all very depressing. So I would say that my reaction was similar to others, and we all had a concern that the episode was so dark. And the curious sort of corollary or, or sort of tangent to that was that. I became convinced that they, I, that there was something, I had some problem with David. And I remember, you know, that, and I thought, well, maybe that's why I'm so depressed because you know, there's something troubling me. You know, we, I thought we were having some disagreement and, you know, after all that time working together. And so I remember I went to him when it was over and said something. I don't remember what I said. And he was mystified. He didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> there was nothing going on at all. And, and I went, really? No, I don't know. I don't know what you mean. So I realized that my that I had misplaced my source of my dark mood from the show onto David. Hmm. We must be having some problem. 
you know, like you, you think you're going having a problem with if you're married with your of wife course, or whatever. Of course, you know, yeah. and it turns out, you know, you go and you discuss it, and then they go, "No, that's not what I said. That's what I meant at all." And you kind of go, "Well, then what the fuck is going on here?" Yeah. The answer to that question in this case was, it was the episode. It was just fucking depressing to direct, and uh, I just felt dirty in a way. And I wasn't surprised that there was the outcry. But I also agreed with David. I mean, at least I thought it was a very bold move. you got to remind say, people. Yeah, they're gangsters. and They do horrible things. They're not just a bunch of charming, humorous uh, buffoons. You know, they're... So anyway. Uh, I love the personal anecdote, too. Sometimes we always get it. We're our own worst enemies, right? We get in our own head and we project stuff on to other people that just does, isn't there. And it's, uh, exactly. it, it happens in the workplace. It happens in the home life. And it's just part of being human. The song, the episode, this episode, so the music is like, the music is always a character in the show for me and so many other fans. Like, I just love the music. I can't get enough of it. And one day, everybody, everybody I've talked to has to say, you're going to have to ask David, you're going to have to ask David. And I hope I obviously get the chance to do that one day. But in this song, this episode in particular, the song Living on a Thin Line by the Kinks, such a powerful song and such a perfectly chosen song for this episode. Any insights on the choice? No. Those are really David's calls, and, and uh, you know, I mean, that, I mean, that really is, I hate to say it, but you'll have to ask David, because he really, he's, uh, he's got an incredible uh, encyclopedic knowledge of and memory for, you know, particularly pop music. You know, I don't think he's, classic isn't his thing, and jazz really isn't so much. And he's just got a great singular feel for music, and... Uh, I mean, I think he opened the door. I mean, there are other shows that now do that and do it quite well. I mean, Fargo does it beautifully. And, yeah. And uh, Get Shorty does it beautifully. You know, there are certain shows that are really, uh, and I would imagine the David Simon shows and, you know, the, the people that have a built year for music, really. I mean, certainly to my knowledge, and I'm not the most up-to-date on television, but, you know, David was the first person to really open that door because there's no score, really. I did see an episode the other day. The second episode, there's some music that comes in, and I actually wondered if he'd added it later because I didn't remember ever being any music, any score underneath anything. But it really was all basically needle drop. I mean, so that choice was David. Okay. To get the thing that's just so fascinating to me about it is to get people to watch the show after the fate, after the fade to black, and you're watching the credits. Uh, the song choice is what carries you into that space and more often than not i always find myself even after having watched it hap- dozens and dozens of times throughout the course of my life the song choice gets you every time because it really is a methodical like you said needle drop like okay i'm not done with you yet you still got to listen to this and and this is going to get you kind of the song is going to actually summarize what you just saw for the last 55 minutes and i just i can't i, I love it i can't get enough of it yeah well and he is masterful at it you know i mean even the title sequence song he sure. changed at the last moment you know yeah. that was that was a i shot the title sequence and, right and right. Uh, you know it, we were imagining a different song and then all of a sudden the last moment he found this other piece and changed it and of course it became this incredibly memorable title sequence it's one of the few sequences that you actually watch through and through as opposed to yeah. fast forwarding <laughs> or skipping to get to the next to get to the to the scene because the the title sequence sets you up for what you're about to be presented in, in a way that very few if any title sequences are able to do yep yep that's exactly right and uh, you always look forward to hearing what the song is going to be you know yeah 
for all debts, public and private, one of my favorite speeches of all time, the Tony's Time Immemorial speech. Talk briefly about the execution and thought process for that sequence, lighting, the camera choices, the use of silence and space in between, Tony, in between Tony's monologue. Now, let's see. Remind, you have to remind me, which... which uh... Where is he in that scene? Physically, it's the scene he? where he. It's the scene where he walks out of the Bada Bing. He crosses over the footbridge where Tracy's uh, killing happened. That's a low right. shot from the creek that you're showing him cross over, and then he comes yep. into a back room or a back office, and it's the and scene he's talking where talking to all the guys. He's talking to all the guys. Up. The camera's kind of like yeah. moving around, like a like it almost looks like it's a hand cam, and he's like, "I need some fucking earners," and yeah. um, he's lit like again, like an. Italian painting, and I just want—I just want you to take me and listeners into the into that room, into that space for a couple minutes. Well, I mean, uh, my uh, first of all, going back to the bridge, I remember that shot was sort of uh, inspired by, and I don't know why, but by a, a some kind of shot from a Kurosawa film. There was just something about those guys; they were like soldiers, you know, going across this bridge, little bridge. Nothing in the script, really. It's just something that I felt like you needed before that scene, and then. You get into that very heavy scene. It's all kind of shot fairly tight, I recall. You know, honestly, I'd have to look at the uh, at the uh, the shot pattern to to address that more. I probably should have prepared for this better. You can always call me back, and I can watch the scene and talk to you about it with some clarity. Uh, I'm going to take you up on that, but, so be careful. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, no, actually, you should because okay. I can't give you a great answer. All sure. I can tell you is that I, I knew that the weight was going to be on Jim. But the shot, you're, the specific sequence you're, you're describing, I don't remember the design of it well enough to address. So I'm happy to talk to you about that again. Okay. Call back. I appreciate that. Last question about, the, about a, a sh- one of the episodes that you did before I do a quick lightning round. The test dream. In general, how is directing a dream sequence different than something linear or real, say? Well, well there's two things. There's no obligation to to follow the shooting rules of the series. You don't shoot it exactly like the you've shot the series. You don't, because these scenes are not real. On the other hand, David and I had a long discussion because uh, he was very concerned. He didn't want it to look dreamy. He didn't want me to go off and, and do weird dream effects. I wouldn't have done that. We didn't need to have that discussion as far as I was concerned, but I understood his concern. Because that's where people would normally go. You know, it's like it's a dream sequence. I mean, the, the cliche would be, you know, the uh, the wavy lens, you know, the kind of uh, wave that goes through the lens and the eerie music, and then the dream begins. And you know, he wanted it. Basically, he wanted to make sure that it just felt like reality. The substance of it the, was not anything like the rest of the show, and so I felt a certain amount of freedom to. I don't know, to create a mood uh, through the way we shot it uh, uh, mm. that uh, just felt a little different from the rest of the show. And and again, I, I would imagine that to a large degree, you know, we are in Tony's head. So I kind of used, I kind of keyed off of that. I think it's a whole sequence in the high school hallway. And uh, there's the scene where he's on the horse in the, I love the, one of my favorite lines is when Carmela says, don't bring your horse in the house. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which is a great double meaning here. You know? Right, right. Uh, uh, Jim was terrified of the horse. I mean, it was just, did not want to get on it. I was like, he was scared shitless of that horse. But 
Uh, why? Why? J- j- just because it was a, it was unpredictable, or he's not a he's not a guy that goes riding horses a lot. I don't think he's pretty much a city guy. I just think it wasn't in his, you know, and it was on the stage, and it's big, and I think he's probably scared it would buck or something, you know. And uh, he'd never ridden. I don't think I don't know if he'd ever been on a horse, you know. I mean, it strike me as the kind of guy that that would ever belong to a riding club. So, so I mean, basically, I. I I would say that I, I, the rules were set aside, but at the same time, I didn't try to shoot it like a, uh, in quotes, dream sequence. Yeah. But rather, I tried to give it some kind of subtle, I think of the word, a, a, a subtle strangeness that you couldn't put your finger on. I'll that take that. Well said. Well said. You've directed a lot of shows. The X-Files you mentioned... Sex and the City, Damages, Sons of Anarchy, which was an amazing pilot, by the way, House of Cards, Ray Donovan, and so many more. What was unique or different or special about The Sopranos? Well, I I think from the very beginning, you just knew that the writing was of an order that was just unique. The artistic voice of David, which was so embedded and so, which so permeated the entire series, I think that's what was really unique. I mean, it is mordant uh, and, and strange and wonderful sense of humor that there was kind of uh, always there, you know, kind of creeping around the edges, you know. And the use of language, his playfulness with language and uh, the precision of that, you know. Even though he didn't write every episode, he was always there. And I, his presence was always felt lurking there, you know. He may have... I don't know because I'm not there, but I would assume that he did a pass on every episode because you feel, and obviously he's very intimately, he was very intimately involved in the creation of the series and the creation of every episode and every character. A lot of it was very personal, uh, I think. Uh, he's, I think he said that as well. And, yeah. uh, you know, you're, you're working on something that you know is uh, informed by an artistic vision. So, that's just, I mean, as good as some of these other pieces are, that vision was one I related to, let us say, more strongly than most of the things I've worked on. Which is not to say that I haven't worked on some, I mean, I've been very fortunate to work on the things I've done. And the shows you mentioned, I can't really take credit for directing the series. I just did the pilots on most of those. Yeah. You know, I really, I, I sort of feel a little like sometimes like the Lone Ranger, you know, you just kind of like ride into town and you try to take care of business and then leave. <laughs> it's you know, at sunset, you know. You know, so I think that uh, as good of writing as, that, as some of the things that I worked on has uh, been, I would say that, that the uniqueness of his vision, the fact that it, it also, that at that time in television, that was not the norm. You see, if you have a show now, like, you know, The Wire or, or you know, one of the David Simon shows or the David Milch, you know, Deadwood. Deadwood. You know, they, they, they all have the voice of, a, of an artist there. The House of Cards, I think, did. And, and uh, I, I like, I'm very fond of things like Get Shorty. And, uh, they, you know, they all have the voice of the of the creator. But David was really the first one that I was aware of. And I think, in fairness, I think he probably was. I think he kicked the door open. There had been hints and, and attempts earlier, but that changed the game. And I think that's what made that so refreshing and unique and nothing there was nothing like it i mean when we were doing the first season before the show was known 
you knew that you were working on something exceptional. This was, I mean, I, I've likened it to being in a summer theater and saying, yeah, we're working with this playwright. He's really good, but he's got this crazy name, Tennessee Williams. You know, it was like that. It was like, we're working on this show. Uh, my, my wife was talking about it last night because we were walking, watching the third episode of season one. I'm sort of limping through the series and just because it, <laughs> I want to take the time. And she was saying, you know, she was talking about how funny it was and and, uh, and and was reminding me, you know, what it was like. You know, I would bring home dailies and we would sit there and watch dailies together. And that time it was probably VHS, you know. Yeah. And uh, the two of us would be watching it and I would show it because I'd say this is just not like anything else. There's just nothing like it, you know. You know, and I think it was that. It was the uncanny uh, casting that David did uh, from the beginning and the kind of fresh and unique, very non-TV casting that he did. There was no babes in it. There was no executive saying, yeah, but, uh, you know, does he have a nice figure? You know, there was right. none of that shit. Right. You know? I mean, you don't hear that much anymore anyway, and certainly I lucky not to work on things like that. But you see it on television. You see it all the time on network television. It's like, you just think, are there no unattractive people in Los Angeles? I mean, you know, <laughs> or are there no normal-looking human beings in so, I mean, you know, I still remember a cartoon I, uh, where, you know, this couple is arriving in New York and the guy at the, you know, the customs is saying, do you have any uh, imperfections to declare? And uh, that's sort of the way a lot of network television feels to me is uh, sure. David changed that. You know, he's just, he cast a guy that, that nobody really knew. He was a character actor and he wasn't really physically what you would normally call attractive in this, this network television way. He, he didn't meet any of those requirements. And that's still, to a degree, true of most network television. Didn't check any be. boxes. Yeah, and, and and so, and Carmela, and, you know, they were just, you know, they were attractive people in their own way, but not in... in the Traditional so, network television you know, ways. Yeah, exactly. So, so, and I say that, you know, with no fear, because I wouldn't want to direct those things anyway. So if I've been banned, that's fine. The truth is that from casting to the use of locations, uh, you know, to the scripts, you know, you knew you were working on something exceptional. And so in that sense, it was the first. And so in that way, it was nothing that has followed can quite have that uh, effect because because I've done it. You know, I did it there, and then everything that followed are variations on that theme. But it's hard to repeat the kind of shock to the system that that show was. Yeah, well said. A few more questions, Alan. Thank you. Uh, what's what's a memory you're comfortable sharing of your time with James Gandolfini? Jim was hard to get to know. I would say that in all the years I worked on the show, I always had the feeling that he wasn't quite sure who I was. I, I used to show up on the set at the beginning of the season, and, I, and he would give me a look like, now, who are you? I have no idea what he was thinking. I never, unlike Timmy, Timmy became very good friends with Jim. He just has this amazing ability that I don't have of just befriending people, and, and uh, he became very tight with Jim. I, that was not true for me. I literally, in the five seasons that I worked on the show, we never exchanged a personal word, not once. He never asked me a single question about anything until literally the last day I was filming with him. I think it was on the test stream. And I'd sort of had it with him. And at some point, we were sitting some stairs or something. I can't remember, waiting to shoot a scene. And I, I was just, that day, I just kind of, just what I just wanted to do with him. I was just like, you know what? 
five years, you still, I still know you've never, we've never had a single fucking conversation. You would, I, I still feel like you don't even know who I am, you know. And at that day, that very moment, actually, Jim asked me something. Hey, so what are you uh, going to be doing? You know, some, you know, normal human exchange. And we talked briefly, that was it. And, I, and it was singular because he had never done that in all those years. Mm. And uh, I have no idea, and of course now I'll never know, what he thought of me or if he ever thought of me or if he had any opinion whatsoever. I never knew. And uh, so that was my experience. Now Jim was going through many, many different things individually, as an individual. I mean, he was all kinds of issues that he had and things that he struggled with and so on. You know, I never made an attempt. I didn't know how to get past that. So I just came and did the job, you know. I mean, uh, I do have a funny memory of the of the sequence where he, a lot of memories I was telling you about the sequence uh, where he attempts to uh, threaten to kill Christopher out on the roadside. And one of the things that happened there was that I, I had scouted it and I wanted, to, when we scouted it originally, uh, and I found that road, it was a, it was a little some little private, I can't, I don't think it was in a park, but it was some kind of restricted area in Jersey, and uh, the wind was blowing, and all these grasses were blowing around, and it, it, it made me think, of, I, I had a problem with that sequence, which even the writers had, which was, is anybody going to believe that for a minute that he would kill Christopher? I mean, ultimately he does, but at that time, it was like, no, of course not, and that was the biggest issue there. So I was looking for any kind of way I could find to to make the viewer think things are so out of control, he just might do it. One of the ways I did that was when I saw these grasses blowing, I said, well, let's make sure that the night that we shoot this, that we have some big fans in case there's no wind, because I wanted to use the grasses blowing around, again, borrowing from the, the great ones. You know, Kurosawa used to use weather you know, masterfully, you know, to suggest the emotional underpinnings of a scene. And I thought, well, what better way to suggest that than to see these grasses blowing around wildly during the scene to make you feel like you're out of control. So I wanted to suggest this, uh, the out-of-control nature of the scene. So I had them have fans in case it wasn't windy. Well, as luck would have it, it wasn't windy. And you know, so I had these fans. And Jim and I, he was really struggling with the scene, too, because he didn't think he would do this. And it was just the whole thing was a very difficult and then it was compounded by the fact that in rehearsal we had Michael Imperioli's hands you know uh, tied behind his back and he tripped and fell on his face so when you see his nose kind of swollen in that scene it's because he fell on his face literally so every I mean he looked like he's been beaten up which was perfect but so he was freaked and Jim was freaked about that and he was freaked about the scene and we had this and he you know we I was really having to like take on this six foot four or whatever guy at, at two in the three in the morning worrying that the sun was going to be coming up in a couple of hours and it was just horrible and then on top of it uh, i think that was the night that he found out he'd gotten a huge raise which immediately put him into the worst possible mood you know because of his guilt about making kind of money made and so on and then on top of that when i finally prevailed in this argument with him about how i wanted to stage it i then said Okay, turn on the fans. And when he heard that, he just like, it so flipped him out that he didn't even say anything. He just went and got in the car. Hmm. After all this shit, the next step was he knew he was going to have to dub the entire scene, which he did beautifully. I mean, the, the, the dubbing of that scene was as good as I could have ever hoped. And 
but they were having to play a lot of it with uh, this, the roar of these huge fans that were blowing the grasses around because I wanted that feeling of, uh, you know, of the, of the world being out of control, out of joint, you know, and we shot some things through people's legs and stuff, you know, and that was also, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a Western uh, that I remember seeing a fight in a in a cattle pen with a horse with a ca- uh, cattle I think or his horses I can't remember I think it's cattle and you, you're sort of looking seeing the fight through their hooves you know through their legs as they kind of rush around and it just added a sense of like God anything could happen so that was part of the idea behind it and I just remember that was uh, that was typical of my relationship with Jim was like you know trying to like take him on which is, if you knew how big I was, you'd realize how ludicrous that was in these moments when he was, you know, and, and honestly, he never was, he was not difficult because of ego. That's the one thing I would say that separates him from some of the actors I've worked with who are difficult because of their ego. He was difficult because he was trying to do a good job and he didn't understand the scene. That uh, reasoning can also you know, backfire too because sometimes actors are doing it to make it better, but they can also still be impossible. Jim was just, you know, he was his own worst enemy. Hmm. I said to someone once that being with Jim was like, he never would hit you directly, as it were. He was not mean like that, you know, or, you know, or, or hostile or anything. But it was like being in a room with a guy who's actively beating himself up and occasionally you'd catch an elbow, you know. Well said. Thank you for sharing those personal stories about him. I'm listeners and myself are extremely grateful and you have this unique positioning of being in, in inhabiting this space with these actors and these characters and so to be able to hear anything that's might seem insignificant or small to you is actually extremely meaningful to people like us a quick lightning sure. round what is good direction what is an example of good direction literally from somebody's work or just general from a director who directs these shows and directs these actors like what is something that you that you say like how do you how do you unlock this might not even really be a lightning round question but i'm just trying to get a sense of like you know what if i have like a couple of aces in my sleeve this is what i do as a director to get what i'm trying to accomplish any any perspective or thoughts on that well i mean every director is you know serious about it you know has certain has a bag of tricks let's say i mean timmy and i have talked ben Patton and i've talked about that you know things that you go to when you literally don't have an idea of how to stage the scene or shoot the scene. I mean, you, you have to have certain technical fallback positions when, when literally somehow the scene is just so either opaque or, you know, somehow uh, hard to get a grip on why it's happening. Maybe it has to do with the writing. Maybe the writing isn't great or if it is good, but you, it's just too obscure. Uh, you know, um, you have to have a certain technical things that you can do, ways that you can stage a scene. And so I would say that, that uh, I mean, it's, it, for me, it starts with understanding, as I said earlier, uh, what, what is the whole episode about and what is the scene about, really. And if I have some overarching uh, unified field theory, I would call it, you know, about what the episode's about, it gives me a reason for putting the cam- using the camera a certain way. You know, it, mm. it's, uh, it allows me to look at a scene and say, this scene is really about Tony's um, weighted, the weight of the world on Tony's shoulders, let's say. And so I'm going to use him just like, a, like as if he was just plugged into the ground. 
and I'm going to use, and that if once I understand that, and I understand that let's say Carmela is just going about life because that's what her life is. This guy nailed to the floor for whatever reason, depression, the weight of the world, uh, frustration, whatever it is. She can go about her business moving about the room, and I will simply use him as, as I said, the fulcrum uh, around which, or, or the axle around which she revolves. And, the, and that would then dictate how I would move the camera. You know, I've been accused of moving the camera, but what I always say is, no, I move the actors and the camera just goes with them. And, I like and, that. Uh, you know, that's it's really true. I mean, I think there, I, I'm a big enemy of the unmotivated move. You know, I hate every single moment of network television where the camera is constantly dollying around a scene because it's a meaningless, if I may say, a fucking meaningless camera move. It is what you do in lieu of the fact that there's nothing going on. Some people are spouting a bunch of exposition, telling you the story. There might as well be a fucking radio show. Yeah. And so to make up for that, the camera does this slow, meaningless move. That's why, I mean, the truth is that shot of Tony walking outside, you know, it runs the risk of being that. It's just that that hadn't become a cliche yet. You know, now this constant dolly in camera. I mean, I even had somebody interviewing me and the camera was moving like that. It's like, what are you moving the camera for? <laughs> You know, they, they do, I mean, why, why? It's because they, they fear that the attention span of the viewer a, is so yeah. short. It's a substitute they, for bad writing, too. That's, you know. It's a substitute for bad writing. It's just, or for just cliched writing, you know. Yeah. So let's just move the camera for no fucking reason. So I hate that. But if you stage something and the staging suggests the, the psychology of the scene, the, the drama of the scene, if you want to just be simple about it, you know, just what's going on? Tony can't move. He's immobilized by, by what's going on in his head and, 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 you know, by the circumstances, by the weight of what's happened to him, whatever. And if uh, Carmela's response to that is simply, well, I'm just going to go about my business because there's not a damn thing I can do about it, and I've seen this before anyway, and he'll live. Then she moves about the scene that way, you know. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, by the same token, you know, uh, the, the scene when uh, it's in college when she's, well, again, you know, when, when uh, Father Phil shows up and the camera goes with her as she uh, takes his jacket off. Right. I use that as a way to follow her as she essentially encircles him. This is kind of, there is a sort of seduction going on in that scene throughout. Sure. You know, and later when they're in the uh, in the living room sitting on the floor, you know, I was just treating that like, teenagers who've been had too much to drink and they're leading up to that first kiss you know mm-hmm. the camera doesn't cut there it no. just it just slowly tightens and she kept using the word pusillo and i had said something to her about that you know that it was like a kiss you know like that you just say that word and your lips kind of make a shape like you're going to kiss somebody you know and so and and the camera just kind of i can't remember if it moves a little bit and then it stops and moves a little bit i can't remember or if it moves continually, I just I'd have to see it again. But I remember that the idea was that we're moving in for the kiss. Yeah. And that whole sequence, the camera's just tightening slowly, slowly, and you just feel like it's inevitable. It enhances it enhances the writing as opposed to being a substitute for it. For in that Precisely. instance, yeah. Or, or or as opposed to no comment. You as know, opposed like, to exactly. I'm just, yeah, and it's just going to cover the scene. If you want to do that scene the way it would normally be done. You'd simply put a camera on her, 
if you have a wide shot to show where they are, you know, show they're in the li- you know in the living room on the floor. You might not even put them on the floor because that would not occur to you if you're shooting that way. And then you know you would put the camera over him to her, and you'd have a looser shot, and then a close up of her, and then you have a shot over her a little looser, and then close up of him, and then a shot from the front with the two of them sitting there. And that's that would be what I would call standard coverage. Yeah. That's how you would do it for network television. You make sure you get every line on camera and all that stuff. But, you know, by just putting the camera there and letting it tighten as we prepare for this kiss, you're drawn into that kiss. You're with them. And you're drawn into that kiss with the camera. We're waiting for that to happen until suddenly Father Phil stands up out of the scene and just exits the shot, you know. And then that next thing that carries him down to the the bathroom where he's going to be sick was done in one shot. And I think you... I think, uh, I can't remember, if, I remember the camera keeps changing points of view. I think it's like him, and then it becomes her shot, and then it becomes her point of view of the door, and then it becomes her shot again. You shift, the point of view keeps shifting as the moment that you're paying attention to, as your your attention shifts. Right. First it's about right. him, and it's about her, and you know. It'd be remiss if we didn't mention the... The therapy sessions, the Dr. Melfi scenes, just to echo your point, I think it was a brilliant early, early choice. It might have been financial based on what is out there, but the early choice to have no movement in Dr. Melfi's office, it was just Tony's point of view, uh, Dr. Melfi's point of view, and maybe like a a tight shot and then maybe a high distant shot kind of showing the, the scope of the room and maybe the distance between them. I thought that was extremely effective because you let the words, you let the dialogue, you let the tension, you let the chemistry do the heavy lifting and the camera just positions the viewer uh, to feel what they're what they're talking about as opposed to showing them. Right. Early genius decision, and it ended up being a great payoff. Well, I think that was uh, I think that was also I mean that really was largely dictated from the beginning by David. Yeah. I think he yeah. really wanted those scenes to be very very simple, and we all knew that. I mean, there was just no way to shoot them. You didn't want to tart it up, you know, moving the camera. Oh my god, moving the camera stuff. would have ruined it for sure, hundred percent, hundred percent. It's really, I mean, Timmy and I talked about that, like, you know, is there anything one can uh, possibly do that's different? And we kind of agreed, no. (laughs) And uh, the only thing I ever did there that was uh, slightly different for me was that there's a scene when they're estranged, when he's been away from her, and I think that they're kind of reconciling. When I started the scene off with two profiles, and as they, and no overs, and as they, and I think, I think, think that cut remained basically what I had intended, which was that they're not in the shots together until they finally make a connection. And oh, the camera, it, it starts wider and on the two of them, and they're like in profile, and then it kind of goes into quarter profile, and then it comes around to full face. And then I that love point, that you just said that. I love that you just said that. I've been convinced that season two, episode one, when they have found their distance from each other because the relationship ends, all of season two is a buildup of closeness between them, rebuilding the relationship. And the camera is conveying thematically over the course of season two, a closeness and how like human relationships, it takes time to earn trust back and earn confidence back. And the camera is what's showing that the camera is what's consistently conveying that. And I'm I'm so glad you just said that because that exactly it validates the theory that the camera is trying to convey distance and then a closeness over time. Yeah, well, that was certainly in that one sequence in particular. I don't remember which episode it is, but I just remember shooting these profiles and then kind of a quarter profile and then kind of finally you come around. And then they end up, I think I ended up with them looking very close to lens. 
so they're almost looking at you yeah. as they're looking at the other characters. So you're really in very close to being in Jim's and Melfi and, and Tony's shoes. You're very, very close to being in that. Uh, you know, and that was the idea. It was yeah. like you, they're, they're estranged and then they're a little less estranged and then something is said. And I remember I looked for it in the scene. At what moment does a little bit of a connection get made? And yeah. that's when the camera kind of completes its move, and then you finally put them in the same shot, because I think at that point I probably used an over, so that they're in the same shot, you're over Tony to Melfi and vice versa. Yeah, fascinating. Couple more questions, Alan, I promise, and I'll let you get out of here. Does Tony die at the end? Does it matter? Uh, the, the Buddhist answer would be move. There is no answer. Everybody's answer is, is equally valid. What I would say, here's what I would say about the very, very end, that uh, I mean, he does build up enormous tension and uh, for any number of possible endings. It's really quite amazing. And then he simply stops it with the words on the music, don't stop, right? And what I would say is a couple of things. One, if you wanted to argue that he's dead, you could because uh, just like if you are in a, you know, go into anesthesia, you're there and then you're not there until they say, thank you, we're done, you know? So that would be one argument you could make is like it just simply stops. You know, there's no afterlife. There's no, you know, angels singing. There's no you know, choirs of angels or people playing harps or anything. It's just it's over. That would be one argument you could make. But what I would say is that, I mean, for David, I mean, I, the simplest answer is the show is just over. I mean, that's it. The show is over. It just ends there. You don't know what happens. There is no answer. The other thing I would say is this, that for every person who ever saw that show, I would bet there was a theory as to how the show would end. And I would also argue that everybody, everybody was wrong. And that would then go to the heart of what the show was from the beginning, which was an unpredictable show that broke all the rules, that did not allow you to second guess where things were going. That was from the very, very beginning. That was what was masterful about what David did, among many things, was that he wrote a show in which you could never guess what was going to happen, where things were going to end, you know, where things were going to end up. And that went for the ending. Otherwise, I would venture to say every single guess in the country was wrong because nobody guessed that, right. that it would just simply stop. Nobody. Literally, nobody. And that then, therefore, it remained true to itself to the very end. <sighs> well said. Are you reading anything good right now? This is the last question, by the way. I promise. <laughs> and then if you want to get back to me about that sequence, I'll I, take I totally a look at that. will. I totally will. When you, which when, episode is that? Which, which episode is uh, that? That is the sequence. Let me look it up. Guy walks into a psychiatrist's office. I think that's the, that's the season two, episode one. Um, but I want to finish this conversation in particular by asking, are you reading anything good right now? Well, let's see. I mean, I, um, I, I'm contracted to do a miniseries based on the life of Babe Ruth. And I just finished the recent biography uh, very well written by Jane Levy uh, called The Big Fella. We're in the process of seeing if we can option that. So that was a fascinating read because she found things that nobody had found out about him. And so there's that. There's a feature script that I read uh, uh, called A Bloom of Bones based on a novel that's uh, intriguing. And then just read a very, very interesting script uh, uh, I don't know if I, I probably can't mention that one yet. That's uh, <laughs> sorry. No, it's um, fine. Any books? Well, I'm reading a history of philosophy. I wouldn't 
Wait, does that say anything anybody would adapt? Um, <laughs> I think I'm, I just started a book called Mickelson's Ghost by John Gardner. I think that's what it's called. I just picked it up, so I don't know. The jury's still out. Uh, uh, have I read anything? You know, I sound like a complete bore. Uh, um, it's a it's an on-the-spot question, but we do a book podcast as well, and I always just like to hear what people are reading, what's on your nightstand kind of question, because uh, thoughtful people and creative people like you obviously are reading something. So that's the, kind of well, the essence I'll, of the question. Uh, I'll, I'll read you the list of books that are, are staring at me and, and, and making me feel guilty. Perfect. There's a book here called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. There's another book, The Dream of Reason, which is about the history of philosophy. Actually, I want to go back and reread The Catcher in the Rye, which I haven't read since I was a kid. And then The Big Fella, which is the Babe Ruth, something called The Genius of Birds, which I haven't gotten to yet. These are all things that make me feel, as I read these, I'm feeling increasingly uh, uneducated and guilty. Uh, I mean, those are kind of, uh, you know, I've got Mickelson's Ghost, like I said, and then I just started My Brilliant Friend because I wanted to try to read it before I saw the series on Mm. HBO. So, uh, so that's it's a great of, series. Uh, it's a great series. That's what I hear. That's what I hear. It's fabulous. So, I heard somebody uh, tell me that it's the closest thing that HBO's done to The Sopranos, which is a bold statement. But uh, I'll just leave it at that, and then you can judge for yourself. Right, right. I, I will. I look forward to it. That's uh, a great recommendation. So I'll, I'll definitely check it out. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, as I say, I'm happy to. Uh, continue the conversation once I've had a chance to look at some of these things. I mean, in fairness, I probably should have watched the whole series again, but the truth is, you know, there's just too much going on. To of do course, that. no, that's a big ask. And the bottom line is you were there and, and whatever you have to say about it is completely uh, valuable, interesting, fascinating. Alan, this has been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. My pleasure. 